My name is Brandon O'Brien. If you're new to Roosevelt, I am not the pastor. So come back in a couple of weeks to get the full experience if this is your first time here. Uh, but my wife, Amy, is on staff. She uh, led our announcements just a few minutes ago. We've been here about a year and a half um, and really love being here. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak in the middle of this series. We're working our way through uh, the core values of our um, statement of faith. Uh, in a series called What We Believe. And this week, our topic uh, is very important. It's the gospel. Um, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Pastor Ramon spoke about the fall uh, and the consequences of sin. And last week, Zach talked about God's providence in, uh, for his plan of salvation. And both of those sermons spent like a third of the time uh, little mini gospel sermons at the end, right? So it's hard to talk about anything without talking about the gospel. So we're going to focus our attention here, but what I love about Roosevelt is every time you come, you will hear the gospel again. You'll hear a different part of it, a different facet of it, um, but we hear it every week. And uh, so it's good for us to spend a little focused attention here. The, um, this, week, uh, this weekend, I went on... Well, the gospel is one of those terms that we use a lot. And if you grew up in church, uh, you have heard the word so many times that maybe it becomes... Uh, confusing or even meaningless to you. I grew up in the South, and in the South, when people told a story that was hard to believe, they would often end it by saying, that's the gospel truth, right? And it was usually a fishing story or something about weird weather or whatever, you know. Um, and so the got that term, even in a very religious sort of setting, kind of picked up the connotation that when I, what I'm about to tell you is not just true, it's like really true. It's the most true thing, right? Um, it can be confusing, though, because we've got gospel coalitions, and we've got groups to get together for the gospel, and we've got gospel projects. We even use the word gospel as an adjective, which is my least favorite way, and we talk about things like gospel parenting, and gospel coaching, and gospel finances. And eventually the term, it's like, wait, are we still talking about the same thing? Like, the, the word begins to get a little bit confusing. If you didn't grow up in church... Uh, then your connotation to the term may be like gospel music or gospel choir, which is sort of like a genre or a style. And so it's good for us, even though we talk about the gospel all the time, to come back and revisit sometime what it means. As part of my highly sophisticated research yesterday, I asked a question on Twitter, how would you summarize the gospel in one sentence? People normally ignore me on Twitter, so I didn't expect any sort of response. Um, but like a, by this morning, there were 160 replies, and what's interesting is there was some overlap, but within that long list of replies was a lot of variation. People feel the need to emphasize certain things and kind of let other things slide, and some of the definitions I thought were ins insufficient. I thought some of them maybe overemphasized things that I would have downplayed more, um, but a lot of them I totally agreed with, even though they were all different. Which is just to say, when we're talking about the gospel, which is the sort of core belief in Christian faith, it's so complex, it's so vast and comprehensive. What the gospel does is so complete that it really is sort of hard to talk about it in a single sentence. And so what I want to do today is uh, acknowledge that I can't say everything that could be said about the gospel. Um, but I want to say three things that I think are essential. And I'm going to give you those three things here at the beginning for those of you who like a map. Uh, this is where we're going. The three things are this. That the gospel is an announcement about a king and a kingdom. That's number one. 
Number two, the gospel is good news for everyone. And number three, we receive the gospel through faith and repentance. So that's the road map. That's where we're going. And if you'd like to follow along in your text, this is a topical sermon, which means we're not in one passage the whole time. But I'm going to look at three passages at some length. Uh, so if you have your Bible out, I'll just rattle those off and you can be ready for them when they come. I'll just give you the chapter. Luke 2, Luke 4, and Matthew 21. Luke 2, Luke 4, and Matthew 21. Okay. Is that enough uh, advance warning for those of you who like advance warning? I'm going to jump in. All right, so number one, the gospel is an announcement about a king and a kingdom. If the, gospel, if the term gospel is a little fuzzy for us today from overuse or for application to a lot of things, um, that is d distinct from the original audience of the scriptures 2,000 years ago. The word gospel had a very strong and very clear connotation for people who were living in the times of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The word we use, gospel, is an English uh, translation of the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. And that word is used in Greek, in the Greek versions of the Old Testament to translate a Hebrew word, beser. But any time we use the word good news, we're probably referencing one of those terms. And in either case, both, of, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a fairly particular connotation for good news. And it was... Not just general good news, but significant national news. There's a, 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 a royal proclamation, some sort of special report or announcement. It was often a good news about salvation, and salvation at the time had a, a strictly, almost strictly um, uh, material, physical element to it, right? So salvation means your enemies are defeated in war, or salvation means that you've been liberated from your oppressors. So in the Old Testament, for example, at one point in 2 Samuel, King David sends out his armies to fight against Israel's enemies, and he's waiting at home to hear how the battle goes. And once the fight is over and the victory is secured, the general sent a messenger to share the gospel, the good news. It says this, my lord the king, hear the good news, hear the gospel. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of those who rose up against you. So in this case, the royal proclamation is that David is still the king. He was king yesterday. There's a battle. That puts things into question. But the good news is David is still the king on Israel's throne. After David dies, two of his sons claim the right to take over the throne. And for a little while, both of them sit at home in their different houses, and they wait for a messenger to deliver to them the good news that they will be anointed king of Israel. It's the same word, gospel. Which is to say that it's not generic good news like, I found a dollar in the parking lot or something, right? It's, it's weighty good news with the connotation of this is something that is significant for everyone because it's about a king and a kingdom. The term gospel has the same connotation during the Roman Empire, the New Testament period. There's a famous uh, plaque that was uh, written to celebrate the birth of Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome when Jesus was born. He's mentioned there at the beginning of Luke 2 and, uh, when he makes a decree for people to come take a census. And I'm going to paraphrase it because it's kind of long and wordy, but essentially it says this, that the gods sent Caesar Augustus 
as a savior for us and for our children to end war and generally set the world right. The inscription says that he exceeded all our expectations. And for this reason, Caesar's birthday was the beginning of the gospel for the world, the beginning of the good news for the world, okay? So pay attention to what's in that statement. First of all, it's a royal announcement. Caesar Augustus is king, and he's king of this great empire that we call home. And he has accomplished something for us that we have been desperately waiting for, the submission of all of our enemies. He's ended war and has brought peace. But notice, too, that there's this kind of spiritual overtone to it, this religious overtone. That Augustus was sent by the gods, and he was filled by, with virtue by the gods to solve all our problems. So there's this recognition that, like, our problems are too big to just be solved by some guy who becomes king. It's got to be solved by some outside force, the gods, somebody looking out for us to sort of send someone appropriate to, to address all of our problems. Okay? I think these passages make me feel the weight of a word like gospel. And it makes me feel that we're all hungry for something like this today. I think in our bones, all of us, Feel this need for someone to show up and stop the violence, stop the fighting, make things right. And I think that a lot of the division that we feel in America today, even among Christians who share a common faith in Jesus, comes from the fact that we're all sort of desperate to feel an end to the striving and to feel an end to the conflict and we want a better world for ourselves and for our children. That's a phrase we use, uh, you know, that was used by Augustus. It's used in a lot of our political, um, what's the word they do when they, before they, uh, campaigning? That's one. Words are hard today. Yeah, it's really bad when you're up here. Um, something we use in our campaignings. Vote for a better world for yourselves and for our children and for your children's children, right? This is the hope. And I think a lot of us are exhausted by the effort of trying to make this kind of kingdom for ourselves. And I think that our country is tired of trying to sort it out in a way that's good for everybody. Because I think if we're honest, it feels like this kind of kingdom where my problems are solved and life is better for me and for my descendants, it feels like a zero-sum game. If it's better for me, it's going to be worse for someone else. If it's better for that party, it's worse for my party, right? It feels like a tension that we can't solve. And I know that a lot of um, this longing that we're describing is what the Jews during Jesus' time were experiencing about the time that Jesus was born. They had been through a string of bad kings. Uh, Solomon had become king. That was good news for him, but it was bad news for the rest of the nation because he taxed them beyond belief. He conscripted their sons into his army and... He conscripted their daughters into working in his house. And one bad king after another left them hopeless and exile. It had been some 400 years that they had been wanting somebody to show up and make things right. And so when the birth of Jesus is announced in Luke chapter 2, this is verses 10 and 11, whatever else we need to understand about the gospel, we have to understand this. That what's being announced is news about the coming of a king into the kingdom. An angel shows up to shepherds and he says, do not be afraid. 
which angels are always saying. I don't know why. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So this birth is a royal announcement about a king. A king has showed up, and he will bring a kingdom. This is the one you've been waiting for, who's going to sit on David's throne and finally, finally rule with justice and put an end to our troubles. It's good news to those who are weary of trying and failing to build this kingdom in their own strength. It's good news for people who are weary of trusting and being disappointed by people who say they're going to have all the solutions and answers to your problem. And so the gospel in the first point here is an announcement that God is going to put things right for good. And he's going to do it by putting King Jesus in charge of the kingdom. Okay? Point two. The gospel is good news for everyone. So the good news about Jesus is unlike the good news that's announced by other kings and other kingdoms because it is good news for all people. Let's read that passage from Luke 2 again. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the people. Now in this case, he's talking about all the Israelites, right? Not all the people on the planet, but in the first instance for all the people of Israel. And the reason this is significant is that we recognize, I think, that for any earthly kingdom, the peace and salvation that they offer is only ever good news for some people. It's always limited good news for the people who have the privilege of participating in it. So think about the good news of Caesar Augustus. The plaque says he put an end to war, which is not true. What he did is he got so good at it that he won most of the time. Right? So from the point of view of somebody sitting in Rome, there's an end to war because barbarians are not attacking the gates anymore. But from the point of view of the barbarians, the way that peace was brought to them is that Augustus brought an iron fist on their heads and stopped the fighting. Right? Good news for Rome is bad news for Rome's neighbors. Okay? Historians estimate that something like 25% of the population of Rome, some say up to 40%, was made up of slaves. And who were those slaves? Well, they were the people who were defeated by Rome in battle, right? So good for Rome, bad for the neighbors. It's not good news for all the people. And even in your own empire, even in your own kingdom, news about who's in charge now are, is rarely good news for the poor or the enslaved or the migrant or women and children, the group of people the Bible calls the least of these, because they don't really participate in the kingdom logistics, right? They don't make a lot of money in it. They don't, they don't um, contribute back up into the system in a way that the king appreciates. So when a new king comes to power, it's usually those people who end up slaves or menial labor or something else. But when Jesus came, this was not just good news for a handful. Luke says it's good news for all the people. And right there in that passage, the angel sort of puts his money where his mouth is because who is he telling this to in the field, watching their flocks by night? To shepherds, yeah. Shepherds, who are the kind of people that don't usually benefit from a new king. Shepherding is kind of the same no matter what, right? No matter who's in charge. 
But this announcement from the angels is good news for all the people. No matter what your role is in society, it's good news for you too. And throughout the Gospels, uh, the stories about Jesus' life, the Gospel is not just delivered to those kinds of people, the kinds of people who are usually excluded. It's actually delivered by those people. So women, shepherds, prostitutes, foreigners, the kinds of people who are usually overlooked become the sort of main communicators, the main sharers of this good news, not just in Jesus' time, but beyond. So, not only will the gospel be good news for the people, it will be shared by all these people. And I think that God chose to communicate through these types of people to make sure that we understand that this kingdom is unlike all others because it's not limited by geography, place. It's not limited by ethnicity. It's not limited by gender. It's not limited by any of the things we normally exclude people on the basis of. It's good news for all the people. And it's good news for all the people of Israel. And as we'll see in a minute, it's good news for all the people everywhere, not just in Israel. Now, at first, we ought to put ourselves in a different headspace, I should say, to understand why this is good news. Because the good news for all the people everywhere, like all the foreigners, is not the kind of kingdom Israel was expecting. What the Israelites wanted was a kingdom sort of like what Augustus gave. We want peace, but we want you to crush our enemies. We want you to cast them out. We want you to displace this empire that's ruling over us. And we want to rule ourselves instead. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus announced. Instead, he announced a kingdom that was going to start within whatever worldly kingdom you may find yourself in. And then it's going to grow. It's going to be like the small seed that grows underground and you don't see it until it finally bursts through and bears fruit a hundredfold. It's going to be like the leaven, the yeast in a, in a lump of dough that over time works its way through the whole loaf and causes it to rise. It's going to be wheat that grows up among weeds. So for the average person looking out on the field, it's hard to tell the difference of which is part of the kingdom and which is not. And this is not what the Israelites wanted. They wanted a king like Augustus. They were also surprised when Jesus says that you don't enter the kingdom. This kingdom doesn't show up by taking up arms. It doesn't say, hey, everybody, grab a sword. The kingdom is here. He says, the kingdom is here, repent and believe. We're going to talk a little more about that in a minute. But I think it's good for us to try to experience this story about the kingdom as bad news first, if we can. And I don't think it's very hard for us to get there because I'm all for forgiveness. But I do think that there are some people who need smiting, right? Anybody with me? You're like, yep, grace, Jesus, love it. But there's a handful of people that really just need a good thumping and sending out, right? We can get there pretty easy. Imagine feeling so overwhelmed by your oppressors that all you want is for God to send them away forever, to never have to look at them again, right? That's the good news Israel wanted. But the only way this good news is good news for us in this room, the only way the good news is good news for everyone is for it to happen the way Jesus said it would happen. That it doesn't replace a kingdom, it grows up inside a kingdom. 
right? And that the citizens of that kingdom don't expel everyone out. They're, they're working in and amongst the people who uh, are also there next to them and working for the growth of the kingdom. Very few of us in this room or watching this recording or whatever are biological descendants of Abraham. My people are Irish, not Jewish, okay? I would not be included in the good news to Israel if the good news to Israel was that God was going to destroy Israel's enemies. The only way I'm included in is that Jesus said, instead of defeating our enemies, we're going to make them friends. That's how the kingdom of God is going to work. We're going to convert our enemies into brothers and sisters. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. This is worth pausing here for a moment to clarify something. There's a tension, I think, when we talk about the gospel. The fact that God did not send Jesus to liberate the Israelites politically from Rome and the fact that he tells them to repent and believe makes it really easy for us to assume that, that the gospel is limited to a personal faith and a personal deliverance from sin, right? The fact that Israel didn't get what it wanted means that the gospel doesn't have a political or a social dynamic. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ramon talked about the fall in Genesis 3. He talked about human, Adam and Eve and their sin and how the consequences of their sin was that it affected all of human experience. The personal level, the social level, interpersonal, even the structural level. It's warped hearts, yes, but also broken relationships. And as the Bible uses this example a lot of injustice, it's dishonest scales. It's people taking advantage of other people in a way that is so complete that it is baked into the very structure of society, right? Well, in Luke 4, verses 18 to 19, this was the second passage I gave you if you're there. Whoa, sorry. Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus summarizes his identity as Israel's king and his mission as the king of that kingdom in this way. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news, to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he goes on to elaborate what that will look like. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, by the way, not in the notes, this is a freebie. It's my favorite uh, sort of mic drop moment in the Bible because Jesus reads this from Isaiah and he hands it back to the guy who deals with the scrolls and he sat down and then he says, by the way, this has just been fulfilled in your midst. Boom. And he just sits there, which I think is amazing. So Jesus is saying, if you want to understand what the gospel is, what the kingdom is like and who I am and how to recognize it when it happens, here's what you will see. You will see the gospel preached to the poor. You will see the prisoner set free. You will see the blind receive sight. And you'll see God's favor on the earth. So this isn't exactly what they expect, but it's addressing all of their problems at every level. At the individual level, the blind are healed. Individual people healed from their infirmities. But the poor are going to hear the good news, which they never do. The poor is never announced directly to the... Or the good news... Other gospels are not directed to the poor, they're directed to the powerful, but that's a social change that the kingdom brings. And the oppressed are released is a structural issue, right? So the kingdom 
addresses all of those things. It's not that it's either personal or that it's social. It's that it's both of those things. It affects the change at every level. So there's a famous hymn that we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World, and one of the lines puts it this way. He, Jesus, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Is the curse in our hearts? Yes, it is. Is the curse in our relationships and in our social structures? Yes, it is. Is the curse so deeply ingrained in our societies and cultures that it affects us at a systemic and structural level? Yes, it does. And so he comes to make those blessings flow in all of those places, wherever the curse is found. That's what makes Jesus' good news different from other gospels. It's not only personal and Instead of political, it's not only social, it's all of those things. And it's those things in a way that includes rather than excludes people, right? So Jesus will liberate the oppressed, but he will also liberate the oppressors. And he will offer a way to reconcile both parties. That's the gospel for all people. Jesus will prioritize the least of these who are usually ignored but he's not going to make them like the new overclass and put everybody else in, subject, in subjection. He's going to lift them up as models of what the gospel looks like and bring those two groups together as brothers and sisters. The kingdom doesn't replace or cast out its enemy. It turns them into friends. And I love it. If you just read through the gospels and acts, you see Jewish revolutionaries and Roman centurions in the kingdom together prostitutes and religious leaders together, fishermen and foreign eunuchs all together in the kingdom. Why? Because the gospel says that in God's kingdom, enemies are made friends, right? So the gospel addresses our most complex issues, our personal, our social, and our systemic issues. And part of receiving the gospel, part of being prepared to receive the gospel is recognizing that the mess we're in is much bigger than we realize, some of us think the mess is only our hearts, and that's true, but it's bigger than that. Some of us are inclined to think our mess is our social situation, and that's true, but it's bigger than that. And so I think we're ready to receive the gospel when we can recognize that we can't will or administrate or best practice or life hack or bootstrap or legislate ourselves out of the fall and its consequences. We need something bigger to step in and send a new king with a new kingdom that works in ways that we don't expect. So, second point, the gospel is an announcement that King Jesus and his kingdom are good news for all people. The question is, how do we participate in that good news? How do we make it ours? That's the third point. We receive the gospel through faith and repentance. Uh, the good news about the, good, the gospel of Jesus is objectively good news for all people. It's an invitation of good news for all people. But it can be very hard for some people to receive it as good news. And Jesus spent a lot of his time in his parables describing exactly this situation. One of my favorite is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. Uh, this is the third passage that I mentioned at the beginning. It's a parable about a man who has two sons, and he tells them to go work in the vineyard. Jesus is speaking to a crowd that's made up of religious leaders and of sinners, 
tax collectors, prostitutes, other people that would ordinarily be sort of excluded from fellowship in Israel. And Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, go to work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. That son said, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. They is the religious leaders. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. The sons in this parable, the two sons, represent two groups of people, and Jesus is not subtle about it. Everybody knew what he was talking about. That's why they wanted to kill him. The first group represents, the first son represents the tax collectors and prostitutes, known collectively as sinners. God, they knew God's law because everybody in Israel had access to God's law. And when they heard it, this group of people said, nah, and went off and did whatever they wanted, right? They took jobs they shouldn't take. They lived immoral lives, etc. But eventually, they changed their minds. That's the word for repent. And they came back to the father. The second son represents religious leaders. They promised to keep God's law. They went to school for a lot of years to be qualified to teach God's law. They made their entire living, their entire identity is wrapped up in being carefully attentive to that law. But God says, you said you would do it. Or Jesus says, you said you would do it and you didn't. Other places he'll say they were very careful about the small details of the law, like how much to tithe and etc. But they missed the big points, like showing mercy and doing justice. And so they missed it. And because they can't admit it, because they can't admit that they missed it, they remain far from their father. Well, I was raised in uh, Southern Baptist churches and also charismatic ones, which was a little confusing at the time. I think it's probably okay now. It means that I really like when the congregation talks back to the preacher, so feel free to do that. That's one thing we both had in common. Um, but I think the, uh, I, I was often, it was often taught to me that all of us in the room were that, that first son. We were the wayward sinners who finally came back to Jesus and accepted his grace, right? We were the, the prodigal son, if you're familiar with that story. I think the older I get, the more I realize that most of us were actually the second son. And it's very easy for those of us who have been in church a long time to be the second son, the one who says, no, 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 I've been doing it right all along. And so don't come to me talking to me about where I've missed and how I've failed. I've done the right thing. I've been towing the line. I think when I was a kid in church, the, the main appeal of the gospel was, was finding those people who felt so guilty about the life they were living and offering them forgiveness that they've been looking for. And I think that's still a powerful way that Jesus works. But I think more and more people don't feel guilty about their sins, often inside the church, but definitely outside the church. I think a lot of people feel really good about themselves, about all the hard work they're doing to make the world a better place. And so I think at some level, maybe the challenge of our age is that so many of us are that second group. We're the group of people who think we know what's right and we're committed to doing it, and any sort of message that suggests that those people who are not doing those things have every right to the kingdom that I have is really hard for us to take. 
And so I'm admitting here, after lots of education and lots of training and life devoted to ministry and parachurch, that it's easy for me to feel like God owes me something. And when somebody's let in easy, it can crawl all over me. Jesus says, if you're like that, you might be near the kingdom, but you're walking the other direction. It's the people who seem far but say, yes, I want in. How do I do that? That get in ahead, right? So Jesus is telling us here, repent and believe. That's what the Pharisees failed to do. And so how do we get in? It's as simple as repenting and believing. What do we need to repent of? Well, we need to repent of our sin. And that's one of those words like gospel, right, that we use a lot and it becomes kind of hard to know exactly what that um, word entails. I think in this context, it's simple to think of it as living in a way that doesn't model the kind of kingdom life that God wants for his people, right? He gives us a law in the Old Testament and says, if you'll live this way, it'll go well for you. And the people don't live that way. But theoretically, there's a way of living that would make things go well for us. And in various ways and in different degrees, we all fail to do that. And that's one of the things that we need to repent of. But I think we also, in light of this parable about these two different kinds of people, we also have to repent of our righteousness. Because there's a lot of times we do the right things, and we are so proud of ourselves for doing the right things that it excludes the people around us. It actually makes it hard for them to see Jesus because we're just so proud of ourselves. It's not the king that we're pleased with. It's our efforts, right? And so I think some of us probably need to repent of our righteousness. And I think that all of us right now probably need to repent of the ways that we have tried to make things better for ourselves and our children in ways that make things worse for other people and their children. It's really hard to get past the zero-sum game of good news when we're playing it the way earthly kingdoms play it. Which brings us to the second thing. That's what we should repent of. What do we need to believe? Or how do we believe? Paul puts it really simply in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? So he's talking about confessing and believing. There's actually two things here to believe. In order to confess that Jesus is Lord, you have to believe that he's Lord, right? So let's use those two things. To believe that Jesus is Lord means that we have to believe the things about Jesus that he says about himself. That I'm the one come into the world to bring about the kingdom. We have to believe that. We have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he will do what he said he would do. But that second part gets at sort of the heart of the matter. Israel didn't expect a king that would, a, a, a gospel that would leave its enemies intact. And it didn't expect for this good news to be good news for everyone. It also didn't expect that the way Jesus would prove to be king was by getting himself killed by Israel's enemies. They didn't see that coming. We're all sanctimonious about this now, 2,000 years later, but that's a really lousy Messiah, just so everybody's clear, right? If, if your job is to lead the people into battle to free them from their enemies, getting killed is the worst possible outcome, right? But Jesus, what the gospel tells us is that's exactly how he proved that he was the king, not only of Israel, but of the whole world. 
because anyone can die for a cause. But only Jesus was raised to prove that he was exactly who he said he was. While he lived, he modeled what it looks like to live in the kingdom. He kept God's law perfectly. No other king had done that. That's why they were never really good news for Israel. But Jesus lived a perfect life on Israel's behalf. But then he also experienced the ultimate consequence of all the previous disobedience, which was death on a cross, also on Israel's behalf. So that means when God raised him from the dead, he was affirming that Jesus' life and death were enough to be on Israel's behalf and everyone else's. So that now the good news can be not just for all of Israel, but all people, every place in the world. And the way we enter into the kingdom is simply by acknowledging that this is who Jesus is and he can do what he says he will do. Faith and repentance. So the gospel, maybe we could summarize it this way. Still not satisfied with this, but we only get one shot at this, you know. So maybe if there are three services, I'd be better off by the end. But the gospel is an announcement that through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus makes God's kingdom available to all people. It's not a bad summary. So here's a bonus conclusion. What does the gospel do, right? It's not really what the sermon is about. It's about what is the gospel, but what does the gospel do? It does all kinds of things. But I want to just focus on one thing as we close, which is how the gospel changes us. The gospel, it would be easy to hear an announcement about a king and a kingdom and say, oh, there's a new kingdom. That means there's a bunch of new laws for living in the kingdom. But one of the ways that God, that this new kingdom is unique is that it doesn't come with a set of requirements because all through scripture, God always liberates before he legislates. He always sets people free and then says, now that you're free, I want you to live this way in response to the freedom that you've experienced, right? So he doesn't say, here's a new law, keep it and you can be in. He says, you come in by faith through repentance, that's it. But once you're in, once we repent and believe, God begins to write his law on our hearts. Not only so that we can live in a way that's consistent with the kingdom, but so that we want to live in that way. And the Holy Spirit is a topic for another day. That was the big conflict when you grew up Southern Baptist and charismatic. You're always like, what's the spirit about? Should we be nervous? Should we be excited? Um, the, yes, probably. Um, but this is the work of the Holy Spirit, which is a subject for another day, to write this law on our hearts so that as we grow in our devotion to Jesus and as we grow in our love for our brothers and sisters, we want to and are able to keep God's law because it's in here, not out there. We don't follow the laws to get in. We experience the grace to enjoy God's law the longer we live in the kingdom. It doesn't happen all at once. I'm here to tell you I've been doing this for a lot of years and it does not happen all at once. But it happens and it happens better when we do it together. Let me pray and close this. Father, we are thankful for your gospel. We're thankful for the good news that you bring Rule and, the rule and reign of God, not just in our individual lives, but to all things that are broken. 
And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to hear it and to receive it and to allow you to work in and through all of us as you see fit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.